Fearless Tips and Talks, you will find wisdom and strength to overcome fear and anxiety in a world that feeds it. Fear and anxiety doesn't pick sides. We all experience it in different ways. In Fearless Talks, I'll introduce you to humble men and women who battled fear and were better off because of it. Join us every other Thursday to learn from these powerful interviews. Hello, Fearless Tips and Talks. My name is Christy Bulwer. I'm your host for today, and I have a very special guest in the studio. Her name is Jenna Barbosa, and she is a fearless friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Truly, we've been through a lot together, and she genuinely cares about our fearless community, loves helping people find freedom from fear and anxiety, so we share a kindred spirit there. She is full of wisdom and love. She actually has spoken on the fearless stage before, but also she interned for us while she was going through her master's degree. So Jenna, I'm so thankful that you're here today. I know that there's specific wisdom that you're going to share with us in this episode that's really going to help a lot of people out. So you are a freedom life coach. Is that correct? Did I say that correctly? Yes. First of all, it's so good to be here. So I'm so excited to just hang with you and your listeners and Yeah, absolutely love your community and your organization and just what God has done in in your surrendered heart with that and love to be able to serve as I can. What did fear look like in your world and how did it manifest itself? And would you say that you're a fear overcomer? Yeah, I definitely would. I think it's interesting because so for so long, I would really be able to say, oh, I don't really struggle with anxiety. And I feel like typically... Most people who do will say that at first. (laughs) So for me, the fear that really showed up in my life was at a core level, the fear of abandonment. Okay. And it was the emotional abandonment. And so having seen that and didn't know that because I've grown up with a super tight knit family, was involved with church, had really close relationships. And so that fear of abandonment can go under the radar when you have your life surrounded by people. But ultimately on that emotional level where I would see that I was afraid of losing connection and growing up where my parents had a lot of conflict in their marriage and God has done a work in their marriage. And I love seeing them today be so different. But as a little girl who didn't know how to process marital conflict and I didn't know how to process what was going on around me, my emotions were what were really dictating safety and love and not really knowing whether I would be safe emotionally because mom and dad were good or I would be unsafe and unloved emotionally because mom and dad were off. Mm. And now where do I get, if they're the ones that were providing the fear, but they were the ones that needed to provide the comfort that was super confusing as a little girl. And so many people walk through that confusion early on in their upbringing and connecting the the dots for me that where I struggled the most with fear honestly showed up in my romantic dating life. Okay. And so I've had to really walk that journey and overcoming some deep coping, (laughs) unhealthy coping behaviors that really caused a lot more fear and a lot more pain, but seeing where all the dots connected with my fear. So to say that I've overcome fear was really, I think, being real with myself about where I was having anxiety and that anxiety was showing up as a way of trying to control the fear of the abandonment. And so trying to stay close or trying to pursue relationships or trying to essentially on a high level play God and take on 
the pursuer role in my romantic relationships. And I, in doing so, I had abandoned myself. Wow. And so really creating that false or that self-fulfilling prophecy dynamic, that fear often will lie to us and say, oh, if you control the fear this way, you'll get what you want. But when we take on that power to avoid the thing that we're afraid of, we literally go into it more and more. So I ride motorcycles, love motorcycles and have grown up on them with my dad and early twenties. I was like, I'm so tired of waiting (laughs) for somebody else to give me a ride. I'm going to go buy my own. So I learned how to ride, took the test and got my first little crotch rocket. It was super fun. But when I learned and God brings this back to me a lot and I use this in my client work, when you are riding the motorcycle and you go around curves are some of the hardest thing for riders to learn early on. But you're not supposed to look into the curve. Otherwise you will fall. And so you have to look through the curve. And so whenever we are dealing with fear, we often look in the curve. And so we don't look through the curve. We don't look through the other end of fear and challenge the fear and say, okay, what? Okay, let's go there. So I'm afraid of X, Y, and Z. All right. Okay. Let's say that happens. Then what? And catastrophic thinking I do that all the time. I'm a what ifer, <laughs> but that's when you, it, you're following the fear as opposed to challenging the fear. And if I follow the curve on the motorcycle, I look into the curve and I just focus on the curve that I'm trying to deal with and I fall into it. But if I'm challenging the curve, I say this curve is temporary and I'm going to get to the other end of it. And I need to look at where that other end is and where I want to go. And then the motorcycle and me stay in balance I'm tilted, I'm curving, but I'm moving through it. That's really good. I think so often we need to realize a couple of things. We need to realize that sometimes fear is caused. And if I'm going to use your analogy, because we're not looking through the curve Mm -hmm. and we fall. Mm -hmm. And so we live in a fallen, broken world where sometimes fear and anxiety comes on with no fault of our own. It's just because we're broken and that's kind of stuff happens. But then there's times where maybe we do need to take some responsibility Mm -hmm. and maybe the fear and anxiety is happening because of our own sin in our life. Mm -hmm. So in chapter nine, I talk about in, in my book about setbacks and I call them aftershock when I would have panic attacks that would happen after the initial onset of the nervous breakdown and then when I got honest and real with myself, I was like, shoot, I'm trying to control this situation yeah. or shoot, I'm not looking past the curve and I'm falling. And it's so hard to build this awareness inside yourself mm-hmm. and ask the difficult question, am I contributing to anything that's causing this fear and anxiety in my life? So I kind of walk the the readers through, have I been disobedient to God? Am I holding a grudge or walking in unforgiveness or have I been distant from God? So Jenna, what I want to ask you is just in your work that you've done, maybe personally or even in your client work, what would be some good indicators that, hey, I'm contributing to something in my life where I'm creating more anxiety than I really need to be creating. And maybe what are some additional questions that you would have your clients ask to get real and be self-aware? Am I contributing to any of this? Yeah, that's really good. I think that a question that I would, I love the questions that you have. Those are so powerful. And I think a big question is what am I avoiding? Mm. Am I avoiding my emotions? Am I avoiding myself? Am I avoiding the reality 
there is a there's a very real need to even be able to settle into awareness. I always say awareness is the starting point and then the accountability is the bridge that takes you from awareness to growth. And so we have to settle in and stabilize an awareness long enough to be able to even see the bridge in front of us to, to hold ourselves accountable, have responsibility. What is my part? What is their part? That's another two questions I would add to that list. Okay, what's my part? What's their part? Because so many times we stay stuck in that powerlessness feeling and we don't want to accept that in truth, we are truly powerless over others. Like I cannot control another human being as much as I want to. And moms all agree and say, amen. Yes. <laughs> Can't parents control your kids, parents, no. and yeah, dads too. <clears throat> but I think that it has to be a radical acceptance of reality. We have to be courageous enough to be able to radically accept the reality in front of us. And when we do, we get the we get to feel the truth of being empowered by the Holy Spirit, by God's truth, by God's discernment, by our relationship and power with God, then we're able to handle what is in front of us in a way that is from wisdom and discernment and from a heart that knows it is loved and safe. Whereas if we go into it, we're trying to say, okay, what's in front of me? And I don't want to accept the reality that I own a part in this, right? So somebody has done X, Y, and Z, and that's affected me this way. It's easier to stay there. It's easier to shift the blame and keep the blame on that, right? But that's where the courageousness comes in to say, okay, I'm not isolated, Like the rock dropped into the pond, but the ripples create more ripples. So the rock was the originating thing, but the ripples affect each other. And so that's where our responsibility comes in to say, okay, they did X, Y, and Z. That happened, but what is my choice in the ripple effect from it? That's where we have to learn awareness. But we also have to be aware of their humanity just as much as our humanity. And so, and this is why... And I love that you keep coming back to in the book, Christian Counseling, because it, you can't just unpack this over a cup of coffee or one journaling session, right? I know you journal a lot. I've, with my unpacking personal stuff, I have three years of, I have five journals that are like Mm -hmm. page to page. Like it's a process and that's why it's so important to not just expect a quick fix and so much of struggling with fear, aftershocks the big origination of the earthquakes. Like we we just want a quick fix over it. And that's just our coping mechanisms to want to get out and want to control the pain. But that's when we have to really ask, okay, what am I avoiding? Often we're avoiding the pain. That is the origination point that the fear comes from. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like I'm in a counseling session right now (laughs) because I wish I could have, I can go back and add that bullet point. What am I avoiding? Because I think so much when I'm struggling either with my own sin in my life or just a flat out panic attack, if I can go back and go, oh man, I'm avoiding feeling lonely. I'm Mm -hmm. avoiding feeling the fact that I think I'm 
I can control the situation mm-hmm. better than God can. So how do you teach people that just give up control, sister, give up control, brother? You're really not in control. Like, how do you really teach people that? Yeah. So that is hard because it's way easier said than done. Just let go. That, and there is truth of letting go. But how we let go is accept. It's that it really is that radical acceptance. Whenever we're trying to control it's we're trying to control because we feel powerless to change the situation or tra- change the person who's hurt us or is continuing to hurt us. So in that moment, we're trying to trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. That's that control. The belief system truly is rooted in so much, but it's rooted in that false sense of security that says, if I can control, then I can be safe. If they can blank, then I can feel blank. It's always that if and then, which is that cause and effect. But that is where we really have to learn how to reframe. Okay, so if I'm afraid that I don't have power here because I'm not seeing I can control this, so I just continue to feel more powerless and powerless. When we stop long enough and say, you know what? Like, I literally don't have power here over them. But I do have power in Second Timothy first. One seven, God says, I've given you a spirit of power, not fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I love that those three are following to combat fear. And that power part is the power of the Holy Spirit connecting with our spirit. And so when we step into that, we go, okay, I am powerless over them. Yes. But I am powerful with God in me. So what I'm trying to control outside of me, believing it will then control what's inside of me. I'm like boomerang style, right? I'm throwing out, if you can just, then I can. That's what we call an external locus of control. The ability to control my feelings that I might be avoiding, the ability to control that exists outside of myself. Whereas God's saying, no, that power to control you exists in Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the spirit being self-controlled. If I take that control location out from outside of myself and move that back in, then I connect with God and myself in a way that is in line with what God has commanded me to do in the Bible, to stand firm and be courageous and don't be afraid. But so much we're, we're leaving that control outside of ourselves. And so the radical acceptance is saying, oh my gosh, I literally have no control of anything outside of myself. And that frees me up to then put the focus and the energy of my control internally, but in a way that is from a place of love and security, not shaming myself, because that's also what we do. We try to control ourselves. If you would just be blank and if you would just do this and if you would do that differently and if you weren't this and you weren't too much and you're all too, that is such an internal dialogue to try to protect ourselves. Again, it's that if I could just, then they would. So that then I could feel. So it's, we have to learn to almost take a spiritual saw and just saw away the ropes that we've thrown out as anchors to people in our life and tethering our emotional safety and our love and our security. And they have the other end of it. You love to do work with attachment. And that is a situation where the only thing we should truly be attached to is the Holy Spirit. But for some reason, 
we get our claws into mm-hmm. other people, whether it's our children, our husband, our friendships, our bosses, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. And we grab onto these things. Do you think it's because we're longing for security in places that can't be met other than with Jesus? And if that's the case, how do you recognize that stuff within yourself? Yeah. So typically the trauma brain works in two questions. Am I love and am I safe? And the thinking brain where we have a right head about us, that's what choices do I have to make? So a heal, like a healthy adult mentality says, I'm an adult and I can choose what I participate in. I have choices. So no matter if something in front of me falls down, I have choices on the other side of that. I don't just fall off into a cliff. But this is why attachment work is so powerful to dig into because when we are, when we're children, we only have one father. We only have one mother. And our brain isn't even done developing till we're 25. And interestingly enough, around 21 to 25 is when the prefrontal cortex really solidifies, which is where we think clearly, analytically, critically. So up until I'd say a good solid 18, everything that is forming in us, competency, security, love, baseline, understanding of safety and security, identity, all of those things inferiority versus one among equals, all of that stuff is being developed with emotional brain is higher, like activated higher and more intensely than our thinking brain is. And so we can't, as a kid, think our way out of things. Mm -hmm. We feel our way through it. And so when we have parents and other people in life coming to us with a thinking approach, meeting a feeling hurt, then the little kid just takes messages to try to fix the feelings. And this is where the attachment stuff settles in on a little kid's blueprint in their coping mechanism that says, if I cried and I got yelled at, then it was my fault. So just don't cry again. Wow. And so this is where early on we learn to cope not effectively at times, if it's like an insecure situation. And, and there are secure attachments that happen for sure. But this is where we're talking about like deep rooted, like fear and struggle, right? But with that, a little kid learns how to earn their safety and earn their love. Because when they show up feeling unloved or feeling unsafe, and they're not met with secure comfort and soothing and protection and provision and all of that for their emotional state, they can't help but shift and create an emotional program internally to say, that's not the way to connect with mom. Don't cry again. So if she only connects with me or if dad only connects with me when I'm this way, then this emotion has to follow this behavior. That behavior has to follow that emotion. So we get stuck trying to be responsible for the connection around us, which would then provide feelings of safety and love. Wow. So it's, it, there's so much of when we are emotionally triggered, those aftershocks, those are associations. Our brain operates so deeply on associations. And so it associates, oh, remember when you showed up that vulnerable and that big thing happened? Yeah, we don't want to do that. Oh, remember how, you know, when that happened and you showed up and made them feel so good about themselves and did exactly what they wanted you to do, then they gave you a sliver of hope for successful connection. 
like it's all about those associations. And so that's a big part of why whenever we are struggling with aftershocks, with triggers, we have to ask ourselves, is this that? This is not that. Okay, so this thing feels like that. And it's, I'm associating it with that, but it is not that. And then we're able to move through those aftershocks a lot better and triggers a lot better. But if we don't fully understand the that, if we don't understand the earthquake, if we don't understand what initially caused such a rift in our security system internally, you'll never be able to do that work. We're never going to be able to do that work. And that's why people are quote insecure. Wow. And need all the affirmation and need all the vision because their source of control for their security is outside of them and outside of God. Anxiety is something that can be so traumatic and also leave such a footprint in your soul that seems like it's going to be there forever. Mm-hmm. I remember a time where I was on an airplane and when I had my initial panic attack before the nervous breakdown took place, it happened on the sunny beaches of Cancun. So now anytime I get in an airplane or anytime I even go to the beach, I am triggered in a way that I can't explain to my loved ones. They're like, you're cool. Everything's safe. Everything's fine. It wasn't until I read the book, The Body Keeps Score, where I realized that my body does remember and it remembers my first panic attack. It remembers what my jaw felt like. It remembers what it was like to be on an airplane and to be triggered by that all again. Speak to our friends that are listening right now that are, they're afraid of the fear. Yeah. For so long, I was afraid to have another panic attack because it was so debilitating. So what are some things that people can do to work through that and perhaps maybe shed some wisdom on why that happens? Yeah, there's... There's a term called mental recalibration that is, and it, there's different terms around like synonymous to it, but reframing, really just going back into the memories and recalibrating your associations with it. Caroline Leaf does a lot of this type mm-hmm. of, is just reestablishing the cognition around it and experience with it and all of that. So whenever you are triggered, your, your mind, your cognitive brain is very clearly saying, okay, it's Tuesday, June, whatever. It's not, it's 2023. It's not 2011. It's like I, the brain is thinking very clearly, but the emotional memory is very different. And so there's so much with memory work too. Our our hippocampuses are kind of our memory filing cabinet type Mm -hmm. of thing. And like reference points, I can go pull out the file of like long-term, short-term working memory automaticity, which is where you just, you even talk about this, how you drive to your, I forgot what actually the grocery store, like you drive to the grocery store, you don't even have to think about it. That's automaticity where you're just like, it's automatically, it's so ingrained in your thought patterns that it literally, you don't have to pull it up, just experientially knows to be there. So the brain is so cool with that. So that's the hippocampus type is like the explicit memory. Okay. So that's just very easily accessible memory bank, but then there's implicit memory, which is the muscle memory of our emotions and our body. And so that happens a lot in your limbic system and your amygdala, which is your pleasure center, your fear center, your pain center, your emotional center. And so what happens is when it's a traumatic thing that happens, it gets stuck like a vinyl record on an old record like a record player and it it hits a scratch and it just kind of loops and it just scratches and it just keeps replaying and scratching 
until you do the work to move through that scratch, then it can keep going. But what happens is those big memories are still so grounded in that implicit emotional muscle memory that unless your brain can move it through and put language to it and process it and understand it to move it into explicit memory. It's just stuck. And that's why you can see something like an airplane. And unless it's fully been processed or recalibrated or moved from one center to the other center in our brain, the body literally with things in your brain, even to a neurological level of like mirror neurons, it sees the image and it sends the system a reminder message, spoke alarm, like you call them in the book. It sends the memory through the whole system that says, hey, this isn't fully processed yet. Be on guard, get into fight or flight response. And it's more manageable now, Wow! but it is there for your protection. And to just try to control the plane or just try to control the trip or just try to control this, it doesn't heal it. It gives you temporary relief, but the emotional memory is still still looping in your amygdala emotional center. Am I love? Am I safe? And the prefrontal cortex, the thinking has to connect to that, move it through and then move that memory through into the hippocampus explicit memory that allows it to just settle into a long-term memory that does carry pain with it, but it doesn't trigger the belief of I am not safe. I'm not loved And it. If we're not safe, they're cousins. If we don't feel safe, we don't feel loved. I don't feel loved. I don't feel safe. And all of it operates. And this is the crazy part about this. Some of you might be like, okay, wow, that's a lot. And it is a lot. That's why it takes not just one conversation and takes counseling, Christian counseling specifically to really bring Jesus into that and truth into that. Because what's happening is just like paper clips. If I take one paper clip and connect it to another paper clip and do that like with 20 paper clips, I don't have to do the work to pick up all 20 paper clips. I pick up one. And it pulls up all 20. Yep. And that's our neural networks. And that is what happens whenever we have all of the associations that are made. And so when you pull up a plane, it pulls up. Wow. The anxiety attack. I was just thinking how blessed I was to have a primary care physician when I was diagnosed with severe panic and anxiety disorder to look at me and say, Christy, I'm going to give you this medication. It's going to work. But if you don't go home and do the work and figure out how you got to where you're at, you're going to just keep pulling up a bunch of paper clips. This kind of brings in the whole sin factor again. I had to get real with the fact that I was obsessed with me, myself, and I was a very prideful woman that cared so much about my achievements, my success, my accolades, my money, my things, and I was not surrendered at all to a holy, loving God. So there was a couple of things that I heard you say. One is when we don't feel safe, we don't feel loved. When we don't feel loved, we don't feel safe. I had to get real with the fact that I wasn't sure that there was a loving God Mm -hmm. that really cared for my future. And so that made me want to control everything myself. How many listeners are on the other side going, yeah, I'm superwoman. I'm Superman. I could do whatever I need to do. And I don't really need God because everything's going okay for myself right now. Or I don't really think that God loves me. Therefore I am going to control the situation. So I love that you just brought that full circle for me right now. But 
how important is it for us to deal with our sin, to deal with our selfishness, to deal with our pride, to deal with the fact that we are living on autopilot and we're not surrendered to an all worthy, loving, precious God? Like, how are you watching that take place in your own client load, in your own world where we're just not paying attention to that part? Yeah, it's very important because there's so many layers to sin, right? Like sin is sin. We can't like, like that's just sin is sin, but there's layers to it. Sin that we have generationally, sin from the curse, from the fall, sin of our own, sin to another, sin to ourself. There's layers to sin. And it's, there's so much that we've got to learn about what God even deems sin to be. And again, time in the word, time with God's character. And I think that so much, this is why it's so important too, to do healing work around those early years is because so much our first introduction to God is our parents. And my dad handled when I did this wrong or my mom handled when I did this wrong. So that's what God, like how many people are like, Oh, I can't step foot in a church. I'll get struck by lightning. Yeah. Like I, I got to get it all together before I bring this to God. And that's literally a reflection of your upbringing of the belief. And even if your parents didn't intentionally do that as a little kid, you just take in those messages emotionally. And so this is where a lot of that overcompensating of trying to be the best or trying to handle it all really comes a lot with when we're roughly around five to nine years old, really being able to learn that sense of if anything happened enough to where we really took this belief of I'm inferior like I'm less than my brother or I'm less than my sister or I'm less than my friend. The way that we try to develop in that age is a sense of competency. I've got what it takes to be able to handle the hard stuff. I don't have to take on everything because I know my capabilities. But whenever we get stuck, then we we develop an inferiority complex and that comes from a lot of comparison. They did that and I can't do this enough. And when you do that enough, you develop this false sense of confidence. And that's why we go into this overcompensating because the opposite of inferiority is superiority. And so if I can just be the best here, or if I can control it here, then I will be able to be accepted, safe, love in my circle, in my friends and my family and whatever. But what happens is comparison then instead of using comparison to develop healthily at that age, comparison becomes our temperature taker, our thermometer to be able to see if we have effectively been better than mm. even better than ourself. And that's why it's that constant rush to the next thing. And there's this trauma of rushing. I'm afraid of one false step. So I have to rush to the next achievement. I have to rush to the next thing to control the next relationship, the next thing to borrow confidence by the affirmation and the approval because I don't believe truly I'm competent. And so it really does come from a place of a deficit that says, I don't understand love of God on a deep level to know that I am loved regardless of this thing in front of me fails. And so there's so much of a stuck thing there. And so whenever that is applied to then, you know, our sin nature and our choices to sin, it is, I think the highest level is idolatry, believing that we are God and we presume, I know what's coming down the pipeline. So I'm going to act accordingly with temperature take. I know what that person's thinking assumption. It's a suicide. It kills relationship every time. 
I know what you're feeling about me. I know what you believe about me. So I'm going to act accordingly. This is where like the walking on eggshells or the controlling everything comes in with the core of codependency of I, I truly think I can change you and have power over this. And all the while it, it gets, it, do you just almost hear it spinning out and being like, ah, it just feels so much. And that's why it's so important to spend time unwrapping. What is the pain I'm avoiding? Because if the pain is that I am feeling alone in this and left behind, or I'm feeling unseen, I'm feeling unheard, I'm feeling less than, that is what needs to be tended to and loved on and made safe and protected. And that, again, as adults, we say, I'm an adult, I get to choose what I participate in. And so I'm going to participate in truth not in false sense of security. And as parents, you get to help develop that in your children that say there is a source outside of us as your parents, outside of your siblings, there's a source called Jesus Christ. He is a person. He is somebody that no matter when I fail you, he loves you. And so that takes humility though. And you can't expect healthy out of unhealthy. And if you as an adult are not healing and becoming healthy, you're not going to show up healthy with your children. And, and likewise, even as an adult who doesn't have children, I'm not going to show up healthy with my friends. I'm not going to ha- show up healthy with my clients if I'm not doing the work to become healthy. Yeah. And that's a journey till we're dead. And one other thing I wanted to really bring up and I've been, it's been in my mind. It's opening our eyes. It's that kind of awareness piece too of I, God really showed me Hagar. And so the story of Hagar, whenever she was cast out, she was carrying the weight of somebody else's sin, literally in a physical form called her child. And her child was like, Ishmael, I think was like 20 something. I can't remember exactly, but he was like 20 something whenever they were cast out. So he's like a grown man, 20 in his twenties. But in her fear, this is my child. And we're cast out into this desert and literally they were starving and dying. And she Ishmael's like sick and he's dying and she leaves him behind this bush because she's, I can't bear to watch my son die. And she's crying out to God. And what I love about that is God's response is I hear the cries of your child. And so much of that is God saying, I hear the weight of the sin that you are carrying. That wasn't, you didn't choose that. But what you're choosing is to operate out of fear, avoid Right. I can't even speak from a mother's perspective on that, but to leave your dying son and walk away, that's a whole lot of fear, control, avoiding all the stuff there. But whenever God said, I hear the pain, I hear the cries of your child. I hear the cries of the pain that you're carrying. That wasn't yours that you chose initially, but I'm telling you now to be aware. And he said, she looked up and saw the well. And if she, if that, we don't judge her, right? We don't judge our past self with present day knowledge. We learn from our past self because of what we presently know about our past self. But Satan wants us to judge so harshly. If I would have known that, if I just would have looked up and seen, I could just see Hagar's internal dialogue. If I would just would have looked up and seen the well, that I wouldn't have done this horrible mom thing and left my dying child. Like it, it, there's so much just, childlike fear rather than childlike faith that we battle with. And so God just very clearly, it was like, there 
there's a grief process that everything that we struggle with sin level comes down the pipeline from Adam and Eve. And so we always on some level are carrying the weight of somebody else's choices. But we have to become aware and say, what is mine? What is theirs? Mm -hmm. Grieve what is not mine. Hold responsible what is mine. God says you're responsible for what you can control. And because you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit of self-control, that means you get to control self. And that comes with learning how to love yourself from the overflow of being loved first by God. And that requires dropping our pride of being overly obsessed with ourselves. Yeah. But to think of ourselves as we ought to. I think James talks about that. Think of yourselves as you ought to. God's like, it's an appropriate, put, put yourself in the right position. You're not God. People are not God. I am God and you are my creation and you're my daughter and you're my son. You are the bride of Christ and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Those are divine rules that God has gifted us. And if we aren't able to stop being prideful and idolatrous long enough, and that's not just a shaming, like you're just supposed to get it together. It's, it requires healing. We have to look back and go, why did I put myself up on that? Why did I put this future husband role up on the God seat? Oh, because of the pain that I saw growing yeah. up. Yeah. So I can't go back and go, Jenna, your whole life would have been so much better if you just wouldn't have done that. Yeah. And I lived that way in, in my twenties. I tried to do all the things to cope with that. But reconnecting with the self God has created me to be, which is his daughter, his bride and his temple, not me as God mm -hmm. self has been life changing. I think the overarching thing that I'm just sensing and feeling right now is sometimes you have to go back to move forward. Absolutely. And you so beautifully and articulately spoke about how important it is to do the hard work, to dig deep, to figure out how did you get there, to look at your origin story, to look at like, how did your parents contribute to just to look at it all if we really truly want to find freedom from fear and anxiety. There's so much amazing things that our listeners are going to have to just unpack yeah. after this session. <laughs> so I will leave connections to Jenna if you want to look her up, if you want to contact her, perhaps yeah. do some coaching with her, because I think we might have just scratched the surface <laughs> of the things that we need to be aware of in this. Hey, Jenna, would you pray for our listeners? Anybody perhaps yeah. that's unaware of sin that's leading to anxiety in their life? I think that you would just be completely anointed to do that yeah, right now. I would love that so much. Lord, I just thank you so much that your spirit reigns in us as believers that gives us the power. And those of the listeners who are not believers yet, that mm. there is a calling, a romantic invitation, a loving parental invitation, a comforting invitation, whatever it is, it's an invitation to fill the space. And even as believers, you still invite us to embrace fully the known truth that we are loved and that we are safe with you as they're coming more face to face with their stuff, the stuff that feels heavy, the stuff of their childhood, the stuff of their pain, the stuff of their fear, all of that stuff. We can't just look at and think it's fine. Like it, we just, we want to, but there's a heaviness that comes with it. 
And that's when Satan steals hope. And so I just want to re reinforce the truth that you say that you are our hope and that through the hope of you, we have an anchor for our souls as Havers talks about. Thank you, Lord, that you pursue us when we are not pursuable, that you love us when we are not lovable or that we're not acting lovable, but you've deemed us lovable. We are love and we are safe with you. Lord, I just pray so specifically for the hearts listening, that they would feel a release, they would feel an invitation, and they would have a sense of courage that they have never known to be able to take the next steps forward. Even one small step is step enough. I claim authority in Jesus' name over truth that has been spoken today and anything that was not of you, that you would disregard that of the hearts and minds of people listening. But the truth that has been spoken today that you would just permeate the hearts and the souls of people listening. Thank you for fearless. Thank you for the hearts of the leadership and the team. Lord, thank you for the power of everything that you're doing. I claim these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jenna. If you found this to be helpful, you can find out so much more in my book, Nervous Breakthrough. And guess what? Right now you can order it on Amazon. Also, Can you do something for me? Will you help us get the word out about this podcast? I would be so honored if you would share it with your loved ones, rate it, review it, and also be sure to subscribe. And lastly, and I really mean this, we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions or ideas on something that I should cover or a tip that you'd really like help on, please send us an email, podcast at fearlessunite.com. Again, that's podcast at fearlessunite.com. Thank you so much for listening.